everybody. Um, welcome to this Wednesday se session of SACPA. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the land of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nations of Alberta, Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage beliefs and relationship to the land. Today, we're very happy to introduce as a speaker, Dr. Melanie Thomas. Uh, Melanie Thomas is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on the causes and consequences of gender-based political inequality in Canada and other post-industrial democracies. She has published research in journals such as Politics and Gender, Electoral Studies, and the Canadian Journal of Political Science. Dr. Thomas earned her first degree at the University of Lethbridge and served as University of Lethbridge Student Union President. It's lovely to have you with us today, and we look forward to your talk. Great. Thank you very much. It's uh, always good to be back, even virtually, in southern Alberta with the good folks in Lethbridge. I'm coming to you from Treaty 7 territory as well, up in Calgary right now. Um, and so I know we just had a federal election, what was it, almost 10 days ago on uh, Monday, September 20th. And what I wanted to do today is I want to give maybe a bit of a shorter presentation about what I think were the most important things about um, trying to understand elections uh, as they're going on. Hopefully some of the things I say about uh, the federal election will translate pretty seamlessly to our municipal elections coming up in Alberta on October 18th. Um, much of what I'm going to say is grounded in my own research and scholarship with respect to equity, diversity, and justice in politics. Um, but I'm also coming as an instructor who teaches an electoral behavior course. And so um, there are good folks uh, involved with the students union currently at the University of Calgary who like know me from my electoral behavior class. And they're like, that class was great. Let's talk about grad school, right? <laughs> and so part of me is like, since you mentioned the student union, uh, this pattern continues to carry on. Um, okay, so I want to make, I think maybe three global comments about um, the federal election and kind of elections in general. And then I'd like to turn it over to questions because I suspect folks have lots of them. So I want to talk first about, um, uh, I think, something that people don't give enough acknowledgement to, which is just how complicated vote choice is. Um, I also want to speak a little bit to how we can understand the dynamics between things we see at the national campaign, things that you would see at the district level, and then things that happen at the level of the individual voter. And that speaks to the complexity. So those two first, first two points work really well together. And then the third thing I want to talk about is things like candidate diversity um, and how things like diversity and equity um, and like narratives directly opposed to that fed into this election campaign. So we end up with this result where things seem also like very boring, but also kind of alarming at the same time. Okay, so first things first, um, the pitch I wanna make is that vote choice is actually quite complicated. And I think people want to think that vote choice is pretty easy. Uh, and I think for some folks, particularly people who decide how they're going to vote before a campaign even starts, it can feel pretty simple. Um, but the reason, like all the factors that are going into that, even for people who are before campaign deciders, so for people who decide how they're going to vote before the campaign even starts, usually the campaign doesn't move them much with respect to how they're voting. And so this is where you can see a lot of stability in polling, and especially for people who are undecided during the campaign and campaign events move them around quite a lot as individual voters. It might seem very bizarre to see people who are like totally stable and it kind of doesn't matter uh, what happens during the campaign, like their vote is their vote, but it's because they made up their mind before the campaign started, right? So this is one thing to note. Um, the campaign really only affects people who don't know how they're voting at the start of it. Ah. So campaign effects in that sense are a little bit more muted than what folks might think. Um, but even for people who decided before the campaign, I think lots of folks want to assume that these are people who are partisans and partisanship is totally deterministic of vote choice. And this is not true academically. So even the idea of partisanship, it first came to academic attention um, when we're looking at the American presidential elections from 1952 and 1956. This is Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and what you see in those elections is that you've got people who identified as being Democrats. So they say, I think I feel like I'm closer to the Democratic Party. And then they said, well, how did you vote? And they said, oh, I voted for the Republican ticket for president. And so it's that dissonance between people who 
um, identified with one party but voted for another that even sparks the scholarship on partisanship as a concept uh, back in the 50s. And so I know my students always struggle with this, and I think it's reasonable for folks just observing politics to struggle with this as well, that um, somebody being partisan doesn't determine their vote choice. W what it actually is, is it's more like people's identity, their varieties of characteristics, like the kind of work they do, where they come from, um, how much they've moved around, uh, what religion they are, how old they are, things like levels of education, like all of those things that kind of make all those multiple identities that make us who we are. This feeds into some kind of like baseline political orientations. And then those act as a lens through which we view the political world. And so for me, something like partisanship, it makes the most sense to use it as like kind of like party colored glasses. So you're still getting pretty similar, you're getting the same political information that other folks are usually, like I'll put a little bit of a caveat on that for like misinformation and conspiratorial thinking, like that's a separate thing that we should talk about. Um, but usually it's kind of like, so you can have like a liberal, a conservative and a new Democrat looking through red, blue and orange glasses. What this means is that you're going to discount information that's bad for your side. You're going to really amplify the information that's good for you and bad for your opponents, things along those lines. But even people who are dedicated partisans can look at their own party leader and be like, I don't know if I like that guy. Right. Like, um, yeah. Uh, or you could really like somebody who's your own party leader or your like local candidate or things along those things. So like, it's not all this to say, it's not deterministic. The, certainly it matters, but vote choice for individuals, even when we think it should be pretty straightforward, still ends up being a pretty complicated process. Um, so that's just my public surface pitch that like don't assume that this stuff is simpler than what it actually is um okay uh related to this i think it's really easy for people when they're looking at elections to look at the national campaign narrative uh and like inappropriately apply that to every single electoral district that um we have across the country. And so in Canada, we have 338 electoral districts. And for me, one of the most striking things about um, this particular election campaign was that um, like it was, I don't want to say that it was an election about nothing, but it was interesting the kind of like the national narrative, it really wasn't a cohesive campaign about like, I think the federal government or the federal liberals wanted it to be about like a referendum on COVID-19 management. I think for some voters it was, but I think it was more a referendum on provincial governments rather than federal governments. And this is how you can see the Conservatives picking up quite a lot of seats in Atlantic Canada. They picked up four. But if you look at Conservative votes across Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta, there are five to six percentage point drops in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and a 14 percentage point drop in Alberta. And part of me is like, what's the big difference between Atlantic Canada and the prairies? And you've got in Atlantic Canada, like a combination of provincial conservative and provincial liberal governments who were working together and had policy on COVID that looked pretty close to COVID zero, looked pretty close to COVID elimination. We have pretty much the opposite in Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta, where currently Alberta and Saskatchewan have healthcare systems that are not on the brink of collapsing. They have collapsed. This is what happens when you like have to triage and nobody can get uh, an elective surgery for cancer treatment. Like uh, the um, dismissal work that the word elective in front of a surgery does is I think something that I find like most alarming about that particular context. And I mean, let's not forget that Manitoba needed to airlift patients during the third wave over to Ontario, right? So the COVID management was very different on in places where the conservatives dropped um, compared to where the Conservatives picked up seats. Now, I have a colleague, um, Ian Brody, Stephen Harper's first chief of staff, and Ian Brody, when he talks about this, wants to blame the 14 percentage point drop uh, in Conservative support in Alberta to choices that Aaron O'Toole, as an individual uh, in a position of party leadership, made just to kind of like not show up to Alberta, things along those lines. And I'm not persuaded that any one individual party leader like that um, can just like make a choice and that's what happens to party support. Uh, it certainly is the case that Alberta is a consistent flyover province with respect to federal elections. And that's because Alberta is not the pivot. So if anybody's sitting there being kind of like, why do other parts of the country get more leader visits? They get more attention. Like why do we get ignored in terms of federal election? It's because we don't change 
Alberta, broadly speaking, we don't flip very many seats during uh, the course of an election campaign. If you look at places like British Columbia, parts of Ontario, certainly Quebec, uh, and even parts of Atlantic Canada, they're prepared to move their, like you can see that collectively, folks are prepared to like move the road around in ways that actually like decide how many seats a party is gonna get sent to the House of Commons. Um, and so in that sense, you can see that even with that narrative, you can already tell that like a kind of national explanation of what's happening with the federal election campaign doesn't cover that sort of thing. An individual narrative, like we're just focusing on what moves individual voters, um, that can't capture those kinds of dynamics. You need to take into account regional dynamics and you need to take into account things that are happening at the level of the electoral district. So I've got new research that was just accepted for publication in the Canadian Journal of Political Science, where we look at how much of each party's support uh, can be attributable to like the actual electoral district on average. And for most parties, it's about 10% across all 338, but there's huge variation across districts. So if you're looking at Wiscana in Saskatchewan, while Ralph Goodell was the Liberal Member of Parliament, like over 90% of the Liberal vote in Wiscana was due to Wiscana. <laughs> That's very much the Ralph Goodell effect, right? In lots of other districts, like the district effect is effectively zero. And for some parties, it's been increasing. For some parties, it's been decreasing. It's one of these things where they're really, it really is a much more localized kind of story. And so this might be interesting for people to know that like in any given district, like um, a chunk of what you see with respect to um, uh, an, any kind of election result has to do perhaps, not always, but sometimes has to do with that particular district level. The other thing I want to say too, is that things that move individual voters quite a lot tend to like, have very little effect on the national narrative overall. Um, this is usually issues. So there are lots of people, I know I'm a voter like this, especially with municipal elections, I have a list of issues and I have questions that I ask about those issues. And depending on whether or not a candidate's answer is yes or no, or what direction they happen to be pointed on that issue, those are really important for me for deciding whether or not I'm actually going to support them with my vote. Uh, this happens quite a lot with individuals. So those kinds of considerations move individual voters quite a lot. They don't move elections. So every time I get a journalist being like, what issues matter in this election campaign? I'm like, tell me a voter and we can have that kind of conversation. But for every voter where an issue matters in a particular direction, I can give you another one where that issue doesn't matter or it matters, but in the opposite direction. So they're canceling each other out. Um, usually issues don't have more than like one to two percentage points effects overall on an election outcome. And before somebody says, but what about the free trade agreement with the United States in 1988? I would simply point out what else was happening at that time? Mega constitutional politics, the Meech Lake Accord. Like if you've not seen dancing around the table with respect to indigenous um, negotiations with respect to those constitutional patriation discussions and just how like badly the Canadian state did that, um, also culminating in the death of Meech Lake, thanks to Indigenous activism via the Manitoba legislature, among other things, right? Um, like, you can imagine in 1988, all the parties involved kind of don't want to have an election on the Constitution. So we agree to take that issue off the table, and then we really agree just to talk about the free trade agreement. Uh, uh, like, you can see it requires some kind of collective action of all the parties involved to have an issue or an election fought on a single issue. Absent that pressure of like not wanting to fight an election on a constitution, like lots of issues are fair game and lots of interesting ones popped up in this election. I remember listening to Mr. O'Toole talking about guns and I was like, that's a choice that I don't think is very strategic because this isn't a winner for the conservatives. It's like you need a dog whistle to keep certain parts of the base happy in ways that will lead to penalties for especially non-aligned voters in, in more urban districts. Um, or for people who are like not aligned to a particular political party, but like would hear something like assault rifles and be like, wait, what? Like that's, yeah. So that would be one of those issues. Where I was just like a strategic choice to not talk about that might've been wiser, but people aren't calling me for that kind of advice. <laughs> um, so yes, that's one of those things too, where if somebody wants to be like, but what issues structured the election? It would be like, they didn't issue structure, individual voters, the macro considerations or the national considerations are usually a different and again, a more stable kind of thing. Um, in that, it's implied in my answer about that, but um, no party wins even a plurality of seats to get a minority government. 
uh, without people who are not partisans voting for them. Uh, and I'll say that again, for anybody who thinks that the best way for a party to win government is to just expand its base, this is bad advice. There is literally no party um, that wins even a plurality of seats, let alone a majority, without people who are not, who do not identify with them and who are not aligned with them actually being prepared to support them. So the more partisans a party has, like the further ahead they are, certainly, and it means you have to convince fewer folks to vote for you. Um, but uh, yeah, every party that wants to win government still has to get people who aren't their supporters to vote for them. Uh, even supporters of other political parties to vote for them, right? Uh, okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is equity and diversity and justice and how 20, the 2021 federal election uh what we we know a little bit more about this, but like it's the same old same old story from from political parties. And so, in my previous work, um, I had published with my colleague Mark Andre Baudet uh, over at Laval University about how uh, stable a party's support was, and how that related to whether their likelihood of nominating women uh, in electoral districts. And the the narrative that came from that work, or the evidence that came from that work, is that. Um, in places where a party's support is stable and high. So a district where they really think that like odds are always good that they're going to win that one. Uh, every single political party, regardless of uh, the very different rhetoric they use with respect to gender and equity, um, all of them have the same pattern. They disproportionately nominate men in districts that they think that they're going to win. They disproportionately nominate women in districts where snowballs have like no chance in a warm place, right? So this is, we titled the piece Sacrificial Lambs and District Competitiveness in Canada. Um, we published that in 2013. We've since extended that to look at other characteristics of diversity. So measuring gender on a binary, I would say for doing actual diversity work and actually looking at equity and justice. And when I say equity, I mean that like, we shouldn't have systematic differences in things like access to power. That's an unjust outcome. And so equity means that we're actually going to like make that outcome equitable. So how do we go about doing this? One of the things that we do is we describe like who has access to power. And the place that we looked at this was respect to candidates. Uh, so with, uh, again, with Mark andre and then with two other colleagues, um, Aaron Tolley, who is a Canada Research Chair at Carleton, and Anna Johnson, who is a proud alum of the University of Calgary's graduate program, who's now a PhD student at the University of Toronto, we built a database of candidate um, demographic characteristics uh, going back as far as 2008, and we've collected the data before the election to 2019, and then during the election, uh, the 2021 data collection was happening. Um, if somebody's going to be like, but you're a bunch of white folks, like you've got no business ascribing things like race and ethnicity and things along those lines. The method that we used was one of, uh, it was geneal genealogical triangulation. And so we would have never um, uh, based our identification of any kind of candidate characteristic based on a single data source. We always used at least three. Um, we would always privilege information that came directly from candidates themselves. And if we didn't have the kind of evidentiary, um, if we didn't have the kind of evidence that we needed to be confident that we could like say, this person has told us that this, these are what their identities are, then we simply wouldn't record them. So we, we're looking at things like race, distinct from ethnicity, somebody's indigenous status, gender measured, including folks who are non-binary, gender non-conforming, um, transgender candidates. We didn't see any of these until 2019 in Canada. Um, I'm not going to say that folks didn't exist as candidates before 2008. It's just that you can see that like the the mores and the norms are changing and so that people feel much more comfortable actually disclosing more about themselves publicly in this kind of context as candidates. Uh, we also looked at things like occupation, age, past political experience, things along those lines. So there's lots of rich work that we can do with that data and like we'll have analysis analyses that come with it. But I want to talk about how political parties pretty much fail at representing the Canadian population with respect to candidate diversity. 36% of Canadians are white men. An absolute majority of candidates, 52% of candidates are white men. Some people might be saying, but most already elected members of parliament are white men. So surely this is just the effect of incumbency, which means that we would need 
the existing members of parliament who keep getting reelected to retire before we can fix this. And we can convincingly and persuasively say the answer to that is no. All political parties disproportionately nominate white men in winnable open seats. So these are seats that they think that they can win uh, that don't have an incumbent in them. Worse, all political parties uh, give more campaign resources to those white men's campaigns um, to the order of 10%. And so if somebody's going to say, well, I expect this kind of like demographic diversity to just kind of like progressively fix itself because it will just fix itself over time. Like at this point, I'm prepared to say that the evidence is such that uh, absent like external pressure to make political parties do a better job of representing the full diversity of Canadians in the representatives that they send via election to the Canadian House of Commons. Uh, like they need something because they're not doing it on their own. And my favorite part is that this includes the parties who say, but my rhetoric is better. Like I'm not the worst. So we have lots of like parties that like to say that they're progressive and they say, well, we're not as bad as the, those guys. Um, in 2021, people could say we're not as bad as the openly racist People's Parties of Canada, to which I say that is not good enough. Like, the proof is in your actions. The proof is in the pudding. Um, simply, like, not being the openly racist party clearly can't be good enough in this one as well. Um, and on this, I will end where I don't know if anybody else felt this, but I remember getting, like, uh, asked to assess the election and it's like the it feels like we're going to get a result that is exactly the same one that we had going into it and I think that the Trudeau government um, foolishly read the polls um, in the summer that, that said that they were um, out polling the Conservative Party of Canada in a way that would get them a majority and so they knew they were going to call an election in the fall and then they did so without actually building the campaign around that and getting themselves organized in a way that would be able to preserve that lead um, so I think they were just kind of like but we did a good job in the pandemic and like that was that was about it so I was I was a bit taken aback at the um, superficiality and sometimes disorganization of the Liberal campaign as the incumbent government. Um, I could hear Aaron O'Toole speaking as somebody who looks like a potentially exciting leader with no baggage, right? So things that Mr. O'Toole was saying in 2021 kind of reminded me sometimes of things that Justin Trudeau was able to say in 2015 as like, the shiny new leader without any kind of baggage associated with them, or at least like not baggage as having like, evidence says like, I did this stuff as party leader, particularly as a party leader as a head of government, right? Um, but still, there's a, yeah, it, like it didn't work, obviously. Um, I don't know if anybody's got questions about the Tory syndrome in Canada, but this is a classic idea where uh, the Tory syndrome in Canada is that like conservative parties, if they don't win an election, like they get the knives out really fast and like take down, take down leaders. You can see elements of this in provincial politics in Alberta and Manitoba and various places. And so my colleagues and I have like noted this and been like, oh, we should probably get on updating that research on the Tory syndrome. The part that I found most alarming about election 2021 has to deal with the People's Party uh, and specific protests at campaign events. And so here I'm drawing on peer reviewed scholarship that looks at uh, gender based violence in politics. And the most common form of gender based violence in politics uh, is psychological violence. And psychological violence can take many forms. It can be online harassment, it can be in-person harassment, it can be vandalism, it can be nasty emails sent to um, sent to women in politics and disproportionately to women of color in politics. Um, but the whole point of this kind of psychological violence in politics is to work to prevent these politicians from doing their political work. So for me, when I see violent protests uh, at a like campaign stop for a democratically uh, elected incumbent um, or for somebody who is a candidate participating in a democratically administered election, and I will say empirically that there is no question that Elections Canada administers free and fair elections in Canada. So like, it's not on the table that our elections aren't democratic. They are. So when I see these protests at campaign stops, um, to me, I say, oh, OK, this looks like the protest. The point of the protest is to try to stop somebody from doing their democratic political work. So for me, it doesn't take much looking at this to say this looks like um, 
an anti-democratic protest. Now, before somebody says, but protest is a hallmark of democracy, it's like, yeah, protest is a hallmark of democracy. But you have to look at the motivation and the goal, right? If the goal is to prevent somebody from campaigning, that's not democratic. That's literally preventing somebody from doing democratic work. So that we saw this spiking up um, in 2021, I found alarming because it adds to the like bucket of evidence that we have that we've got some serious problems with um, how some Canadians understand democratic norms and how like little respect some folks have for democratic norms. Um, related to this, and the reason why I'm citing the violence against uh, the gender-based violence in politics literature is because at every single one of these stops, even though the object of the campaign stop was usually Justin Trudeau, at least that's what we saw in the news, certainly not for other like local protests and things. Um, at every single one of those Trudeau protests, there was almost always uh, incidents of sexism and misogyny and instances of racism. And so for me, the theoretical literature fits, right? Um, the people who really want to critique Justin Trudeau, particularly from more conservative perspectives, often use feminizing language to do that, as if him being effeminate, having nice hair, whatever, um, is something that should be used to detract against him. And so that these were often linked to the People's Party, and the People's Party rhetoric is often tied to things like um, anti-immigration, uh, even John Ibbotson like wrote this column for the Globe and Mail being like, we deserve to give the People's Party this voice, even though they are ragingly racist, because like, and the argument that was presented in that column was that um, I, they'll be just be so pissed off if they don't get represent democratic representation, to which like my comment was lots of folks don't have democratic representation. Like if we're looking at the like full range of ideas in Canadian politics, there are, are a whole bunch that don't get like a full throated presentation in the Canadian House of Commons. So why are we privileging the racist ones that everybody's actually acknowledging to be racist? Like, I don't think that there's an argument to say that because those guys tend to like be prepared to throw rocks and protest in an anti-democratic kind of way that like we should be giving them democratic space. Like I am utterly unpersuaded by this. Um, but that the narrative in Canada is that, yes, they're racist, but they're also bad, so we should make nice. Um, I think it really speaks to our immaturity as a democracy to speak about these issues and to think about what it means to be a, um, a place that isn't based on racism. Like, I think, like, Canadians have a really urgent conversation about this. The conversation that I wanted to hear in 2021 that I haven't heard is with conservative parties that want to be big tens. And the conversation that I think urgently needs to be had in those spaces is where do we draw the line on our right flank? Where do we draw the line on our right flank on that one? And so the criticism I would have is that we're not having those conversations uh, outside of conservative parties. We're also not having those conversations very well either. Um, but like the choices that we make in that in those contexts, um, including the choice to kind of not have that conversation very well, has profound, often negative implications for our democracy. Uh, and so with that, I will end in my true form of bringing it down to a very grim place. <laughs> and hopefully some of the questions can be a little bit more uplifting. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Melanie. Um, lots of questions in the queue, so I'll get started right away. Knut Peterson. Okay. Knut Peterson with the first question. As usual, great to hear your insight, Melanie. How do you see the federal election results playing out with regards to Jason Kenney's ambitions to eventually become leader of the federal conservatives? I think that uh, Jason Kenney would have been a tough sell to be leader of the federal conservatives uh, before he became leader of the Alberta PCs and the UCP uh, but I think now with his COVID management um, failures being national news, like it is striking to me. I can't remember the last time that like Alberta politics led the national radio news um, every day mm. like this. So I think uh, he was always going to be a tough sell because Jason Kenney is from the social conservative side of the Canadian Alliance. And there's been some skepticism in places where votes pivot, like Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia on that. Uh, so I don't think Jason Kenney would have been an easy leadership pick to begin with. And now I think if I think this narrative that Jason Kenney has federal leadership aspirations, that could be true in his own mind. But there is no I would be stunned, stunned if he's actually given the opportunity uh, to do that. Um, 
And I also don't think he would do very well that <laughs> if he was a federal party leader. Uh, and part of this, I think, relates to Mr. Kenny. When we when people identified him as a federal powerhouse, it was as a strong deputy under a strong leader. And I think this is an instance of like sometimes strong deputies make good leaders and sometimes they don't. And I am increasingly of the opinion and I can't that Mr. Kenny is one of these deputies that um, clearly is not a great leader. Uh, and uh, I really would struggle to think about what I would need to see to get the balance of evidence to tilt to my mind. So I would not anticipate Mr. Kenny making a credible run back to federal politics anytime soon. Our next question comes from Timothy, who's with the Leftbridge Herald. Um, is it just me or did it seem to you all the party's messages fell flat during the federal election? If you agree, why do you think that is? And what was this election really about? So this is where I would go back to the the national narrative is not the same thing as things that resonate with individual voters. And so political parties have the tough thing during a campaign of needing to appeal to all of their likely segments of support within the population while also trying to sound cohesive. And so I don't think it's just you. I think that there's lots of stuff that each party said um, that would land flat to any number of folks. Um, for me, the really interesting one where folks were telling on themselves were uh, like people of a certain age where they don't really do TikTok, um, being very confused about Jagmeet Singh's TikTok. And I have a good friend, uh, a good friend of SACPA, Lisa Lambert. Um, at one point, I remember when Snapchat came out as a social media thing, and I was like, I don't get it. Uh, it was like, a because it's not for you. Because it's not for you. And so I think it is fair to say, oh, is there a question again? Yeah. 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 No, there isn't a question again. That was yeah. my mistake. I had my mic muted while I read out that question. So do you mind if I just reread that? Oh, so yes, of course, of course, of course. Uh, let me just reread the question <laughs> for our viewers and I apologize for that. This was Timothy uh, from the Leftbridge Herald with the question, is it just me or did it seem to you all the party messages fell flat during the federal election? And if you agree, why do you think that is? And what was the election really about? Uh, yeah. Okay, so everybody, now that you know why I was going on about TikTok, <laughs> I will try to summarize that up a little bit nicely. So the reason why it feels like some of this stuff lands flat is because like a lot of that messaging might not be for voters that are like us, right? Um, for somebody who wants to accuse me of being a raging lefty, I would give them Tom Flanagan's book where you can, uh, I'm trying to remember which one, it's not Waiting for the Wave, it's Harper's Team. In Harper's Team, Flanagan talks about their marketing strategy where they do a segmentation analysis of like voters. And part of that are like voters that we just don't even bother with because they're never going to support us. Part of these are voters that we don't even bother with because we know that they are going to support us and we just need to like say enough stuff to like keep them in line and then there's these are the voters that could go a bunch of ways right and so that's one of the reasons why like the messaging might seem like it falls flat because all parties are doing this um and for somebody who's sitting there being like i thought that messaging was really great that means that somebody got your segment of the electorate <laughs> real good in a campaign um so for me i i actually think it's possible for like elections to just be an election and if it feels like it was about nothing it like it could be that like the campaign wasn't particularly good for like that particular, the kind of voter that somebody is. It could be that the campaigns were a little bit less organized than what we would hope that they would be. It could be that like campaigns actually aren't about issues at the end of the day, right? Uh, and so this is kind of getting at the, what moves individual voters doesn't move the overall narrative. I realize for journalists, this is really hard, really hard. Cause it's like, well, what do I say is the narrative in the story of the campaign then? Uh, and it's really easy for me to, as the academic, to be kind of like, they're the people who have already decided before the campaign starts, which means that like those voters are just off the table. And then like you're trying to get the small bunch of voters that like um, decide during the campaign, which is a dwindling amount, the closer you get to election day. And a lot of that can be individual and idiosyncratic, right? Um, for this particular election, I think um, what it is foreshadowing us, though, so to give you the thing that you can write about as like the more collective thing. Um, the features of Canadian politics that helped us manufacture majority governments. And so I say this manufactured deliberately because uh, Canadians will know that we 
you don't win a majority government with a majority of votes. You get a plurality of votes. And then there's this distortion in how we get seats translated to votes or votes translated to seats, rather, um, that produces this artificial majority. So people who like electoral reform and want like a more proportional electoral system will present this as like a major negative of our system. And I, as a political scientist, I don't agree. I think all of the ways that we translate votes to seats have benefits and they have costs. And if we're going to have an honest conversation about this, we have to actually have an honest conversation about all the costs associated with this. If we had PR, Maxime Bernier would be um, a pivot, like a powerful pivot in the Canadian House of Commons now. And I think it's worth having a conversation about whether or not we think that's a good thing. I don't think it is. Uh, anyway, the way that we had manufactured this like single member plurality, a system to get a manufactured majority in Canadian politics, the features that we used for that, those are waning. A lot of it has to do with existential questions about Canada's place in the British Empire, about existential questions with respect to Quebec, um, about existential questions related to these like two great colonial powers in Canada. Like you can see that these are these are ways that we talk about Canada. We don't talk about Canada like this anymore. Right. Even something like multiculturalism isn't being presented as this kind of like Canadian like foundational kind of thing. And that's not just a Quebec thing because Quebecers have rightfully like observed that Pierre Elliott Trudeau used that concept to undercut Quebec sovereignty. That's what it's there for. It's not there for celebrating diversity. It's there to like undercut the importance of Quebec nationalism. Uh, all of those kind of like big ideas from the mid 20th century to like the 90s in Canadian politics, those are waning. And it's not yet clear to me what we're replacing them with. Which means that it's possible until those new lines of debate are more settled that we'll see election results that are like this. Like you've got two parties with big pluralities. One is bigger than the other. And you've got more than one party with enough seats to bridge the gap between one of those pluralities and a majority. Canadian politics are complicated, right? And I think, so for everybody who's just kind of like, minorities are bad. I'm like, I bet minorities are going to be a feature for a couple of decades. We'll see. We'll see how that works. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Mark Goodall. Do you think most Canadians even understand the past the post system? If they did, would they think that more would vote strategically? So I think most people get it. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because it is like one of the simplest systems that we have on the face of the planet. It's a you vote for a person, usually representing, but not always representing a political party. Uh, and you've got like national cues about those parties. And it's just like an X beside a single name. Um, most other ways of voting are way more complicated than that. So I think people like get that part. Where strategic voting becomes challenging is that we actually don't have good local information in each district, right? So if we were going to get really good strategic voting information, we would have to be doing representative polls in every single electoral district. Uh, Alberta has some of the highest numbers of electors per district federally, and it's like 100,000, which means based on what we know about sampling and random sampling in particular, we would have to be able to take a sample in each district that is about the same as the sample that we would take nationally. So we can get really good estimates of national um, vote intention. The translating national vote intention to your individual district is a mess. It's a hot mess. And so asking people to do this, most people are like, so I live in Calgary Confederation and 338 or whoever was predicting that this was a district that would flip. And I was looking around being kind of like, no, it's not. If this district is going to flip, uh, the conservatives would be campaigning. They'd actually be campaigning like they weren't. Right. So I didn't see a whole lot of conservative signs, um, but I didn't see a whole lot of signs for anybody, especially on private property. So like you've got the sign crews out that have the public stuff, whatever. But I was like, mm, if this is a place where we're actually going to see a swing, I don't think I'm going to see it. Not here. Right. And so but like the doing the math from the national level to try to do the ecological fallacy to infer down to each district level that that's that's where that process starts to fall apart um the solution to that to get really good local information is so cost prohibitive that i don't know who would do it and so i don't blame folks for not voting strategically in part because i think it's really difficult to get the right kind of information that you need to be able to do that well um 
some folks might feel good if they have done some strategic calculations and have said, this is my vote and I feel comfortable with voting strategically and I'm satisfied with that. Like some, some voters like that. Some voters feel sick doing that. And so I'm not going to shame anybody for how they choose to vote and the individual motivations they do for that, because I think people are different and the motivation to vote is diverse. And I think we should respect that. Okay, our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. After I cast my vote, I thought two things. One, climate change. Mm -hmm. It is not urgent. Is it now urgent to address this? And two, some form proportional wrap to get all the values of climate change talking. Mm. Thoughts on either, both. Yeah, so um, one of my research projects looks at attitudes towards energy transition um, in Alberta and elsewhere in Canada, where we explicitly look at uh, people's appetite to move explicitly away from fossil fuels towards more renewable sources of energy. And so on one hand, people have looked at election 2021 and said, this is the first time that all parties have like something credible on climate change, things like carbon pricing. And like by the, when they say all parties, it means that the Conservative Party of Canada actually started talking about this in a serious way uh, for the first time in a while about this. And Mr. O'Toole making that choice is one of the reasons why some people like want to oust him now. Um, so there is that. So part of it is like, on one hand, you can say all the parties are actually credibly talking about this. And so we can expect to do something. On the other hand, we know it's not enough. Like none of the very few Paris signatories are actually hitting their targets, which means that if the goal is to hold things at 1.5, um, we have a lot of work to do and we're not doing it fast enough. And the reason why I cite my research on energy transition is that we've got absolute majorities, often super majorities even in places like Alberta, of people who are prepared, who say, I agree, we need to transition away from fossil fuels towards more renewable sources of energy. Like the levels in Alberta are a little bit lower compared to other parts of the country, but the attitudes and beliefs that lead people to be opposed to this are the same, like whether or not you're in BC or Quebec or something along those lines. And so part of me is like, I, I struggle to be hopeful because I think that our political leaders are taking the easy way out for some of this stuff and they're not it doesn't seem politically expedient to be able to talk about climate change the way that we need to and to govern with respect to climate in the way that we need to do to actually like get the show on the road with this stuff like we're, we're well past the easy point now we're, we're trying to we're starting to do the stuff now that we needed to have done in like the 90s right um the flip side of this is when i say like do we want to bring in proportional representation to get more people talking about climate and my answer is, do you think, I mean, you could, but do I think that we would then be more preoccupied giving space to people who are being openly racist in Canadian politics? And I think, like, you'll notice the the Green Party of Canada cannibalized itself this particular election because there are people internal to the Green Party of Canada who could not stomach having a black woman as a leader. And I got to say, as somebody, like, people can say until the cows come home that it really wasn't about that and try to make what happened with the Green Party of Canada all about Anna Mae Paul as an individual and the evidence simply doesn't support that. So if I'm looking at 2021, I see questions of misogynoir taking down the Green Party of Canada uh, and giving space to the People's Party of Canada. Is proportional representation going to solve that? No. Systematic anti-racist work and anti-misogynistic work is and that's why when you think about things in terms of climate justice all of those other equity things has to come in so i would not focus on electoral reform and focus on other equity work um i can see why others like wouldn't agree necessarily but but that's where i would land on that one yeah okay we have a lot of questions still in the queue yeah. Uh, Belinda Croson, I agree with uh, Leona Jacobs. Why won't any party move towards proportional representation? Is any mm -hmm. party doing enough with regard to climate? I think you've kind of answered it, but... So, like, no on climate, but why, why not moving towards proportional representation? Mm -hmm. uh, we have good evidence from other places that have instituted, like, reform processes. And it usually, uh, so if you look at New Zealand, it's because a party leader promised it. And I, I, I need to go back and look at the, like, political biographies at the time. And I don't know if it was, like, a, like a public 
instance of like a leader like misspeaking and saying, oh, we'll have a referendum on that. And then feeling like they actually had to follow through on their word, which feels quaint these days. Um, but that's how you get the referendum in New Zealand. And New Zealand switches from single member plurality to mixed member proportional. So you've got this like, um, you still have some districts that are very exactly like what we have, um, but then you would also have like list tops, top ups for proportionality. So that means that voters would have two ballots. One would be for your district, one would be for your preferred party list. Um, if I were to give advice in the Canadian context, I like this system because it achieves, it still maintains the importance of geographical representation. And I don't know how we do Canadian politics without that. Um, but it also gets that kind of proportionality top up. It lets you do interesting things with Indigenous voices that want to be integrated into settler political institutions. And that's like, I would let Indigenous nations guide on that one, uh, which means that we have to be open to having other conversations about other institutions that we don't have that aren't solely settler institutions, right? Um, if you look at British Columbia and all of the like British Columbia STV stuff, it's because um, Gordon Campbell wanted it. Like all accounts indicated that Gordon Campbell as an individual just really liked the idea of electoral reform. If I'm looking at Justin Trudeau, like I remember Trudeau making the like, this will be the last election held under single member plurality, watching Fair Vote Canada celebrate and was just like, you know, he's talking about ranked ballots, right? Like he's not, he's not talking about PR. He's talking about the alternative vote. Um, so like electoral reform doesn't automatically mean like proportional representation. The point though, is that it, is often like changing electoral systems is often idiosyncratic and often driven by the preferences of the individuals that are involved and it's it's frustrating certainly but um yeah this is why part of me would be like i i can see like before somebody tells me but like pr is how you get women and pr is how you get diversity um just know the political science research is really clear that we can have all of those things with our current existing system. We just need to like hold parties to account. We need to provide incentives. We need people to stop being racist and sexist, actually. <laughs> like that's actually the problem there. Um, votes to seats, like sure. Um, but for everybody who's just like, but do the PR for the women. It's like, no, no. Like A, you're measuring gender on a binary. I'm in a rant now. Measuring gender on a binary. <laughs> like we we are beyond that now, folks. Um, so this is why you can't just do 50-50 women and men. And also there are ways to do it. There are ways to do it. When I still interview party organizers and say, hey, you managed to find somebody who's not white, but only when a majority of the electors in a district are also not white. And once it's like 49.9% non-white and 50.1% white, you, you, you got the white guys in there again. Like what the hell? Their response, quote, well, we recruit on diversity when it matters. When that's what organizers can tell me still today, like, again, that tells me that the anti-racism work is the work that I would rather be focusing on. So, okay. yeah. Our next rant done. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I love your rants. Uh, I think most of SACPA loves your rants. Um, Mark Goodall has two questions. I'll read them out uh, together. What happened okay. to the Maverick party? Haven't heard much on how they did here in the West. And then a second mm -hmm. question, to what extent do you think Trumpism contributes to these anti-democratic behaviors? Yeah, okay, so for the first question, um, what happened to the Maverick Party? Not much, because they aren't much. I think we need to, like, especially in Western Canada, I mean, my understanding of the Maverick Party is that they deliberately didn't run in places where they thought the Conservatives might have, like, it might be in question because they wanted to push the conservative party in a particular direction. And like they're getting what 2% of the vote. It's because this is not a message that resonates. Um, and so I'm not surprised that they were a big nothing burger because the stuff that they're talking about is kind of like a myopic thing inside like very small pockets of like conservatism in Canada. So we're talking about like over here, right? There's not a lot going on. Uh, so I wasn't surprised to see that they were a nothing burger. Um, I was more worried. I wouldn't call what we're seeing in 2021 in Canada Trumpism. I would say that Donald Trump and a number of other political elites are have no problem actively engaging conspiratorial thinking and conspiratorial beliefs. So I see this as a bigger problem of conspiratorial thinking. Um, and the reason why I say that is because conspiratorial thinking is something that can exist across the ideological spectrum. So I'm not prepared to academically look for solutions that only exist in one part of what I see in terms of politics. So conspiratorial thinking exists um, everywhere. 
cuts across the ideological spectrum. What allows conspiratorial thinking to flourish is low trust. So low trust in politicians, low trust in political systems. Um, I think lots of political elites like Donald Trump uh, actively work to foster a low trust environment. And I think that we need to hold those politicians accountable because that work, I think, really does make our democracy toxic. Um, but um, like, there's plenty of conspiratorial thinking on the left that is as problematic um, as what we would see on the right. What we're seeing, though, in, in, in Canada is that like the specific conspiratorial thinking that we're dealing with, like stuff related to COVID being a hoax, stuff related to like people thinking that like the measures that are the pretty basic measures that are needed to address COVID are worse than like the disease itself, despite all evidence to the contrary, like that stuff happens to resonate on the political right. And things like COVID conspiratorial thinking, we see like different demographic stuff associated with it um, than what we see for other conspiracy theories that we've looked at, uh, which like it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on to see how this develops. But like for me, the kicker is that it's like low trust and antipathy towards um people that you view as political opponents, right? And I see plenty of this across the spectrum. And so part of me is just like, okay, so how do we how do we deal with this? Part of this is going to be like rebuilding trust in political institutions again. And also part of it is like resisting the kind of like, I hate them narrative of um, about some of the politics as hard as that is, right? Um, and that's some stuff that holds across the board. So that's not just a Donald Trump thing. I would say that there are other political elites that have no problem totally playing on lack of trust. If I'm looking at the current premier of Alberta, and I'm going to be really going on a rant again, sorry. But when you've got a government leader um, that lies about equalization, even though they know better because they wrote the policy, <laughs> or they were at the table where we wrote the current policy, right? Like um, if you've got somebody who's prepared to like, Mis actively misrepresent that to make people not trust the federal government because it's like a cheap and easy and expedient local political win. Like we didn't used to do that. Like we used to have norms that would lead people to not campaign on that stuff because we're like, it's not like the outcome is one, like if that's the way that I have to win, I'm not going to win that way because that creates other problems. Like people seem to have forgotten this and it's not just Donald Trump and it's not just Jason Kenney. Right. Um, but like we need to stop rewarding politicians that do that because like it leads to the things that let conspiratorial thinking flourish and that stuff flourishes everywhere. Right. So we need to see it as an everywhere problem. Okay. Um, Beth Mundell, could you interpret what happened to enemy Anime poll. I think we've kind of talked about this. You've mentioned yeah. this already, but let's, uh, I'll just read out the question, but maybe we can keep it brief. Could you interpret what happened to anime poll within not only the Green Party, but in her constituency? How do you interpret it with the frame of a gender based violence? So um, the constituency is easier uh, because that's a liberal stronghold, Toronto Center. And so, uh, I think there have been new Democrat candidates, really high profile. Um, Linda McQuaig, I think, ran there. And so it's been a number of other political parties have tried to to take that off the Liberals. And it's a Liberal support is consistent and high. Uh, and so the work that you need to do to get the build to take a stronghold off of someone at the local level is huge. And you also need it paired with like a bigger trend to be able to take it, right? Um, the best example I have of that is Edmonton Strathcona. When Linda Duncan first won it, it was a conservative stronghold and she was a very precarious, play, precariously placed woman as an incumbent. By 2019, that turned into a New Democrat stronghold. Um, so you'll note that's like 2006, 2008, like that takes over a decade to get that process done. And so like I would, like there's a local party stronghold story and simply being like the leader of the Green Party isn't enough to upset that. Um, this is why Elizabeth May, after trying to win in Nova Scotia in Peter McKay's riding for so long as the Green Party leader back in the, went to Vancouver Island and promptly got elected, right? Like, um, so if I was giving advice to the Green Party, which they don't call me for advice, but if I was going to give them advice on that, I would say run your leader in a place where you think you've got a credible shot, not a place that they've got local ties to because they want to represent that particular patch, right? And that was the problem with both Elizabeth May and with Anna May Paul in this context. Um, that's very different than the internal treatment that the Greens gave Ms. Paul. I don't know the whole contours of this. I remember watching stuff and being like, why is the party doing this? 
Like this makes them seem not credible, even for people who want to park their protest vote there. And that's just for people who are prepared to park a protest vote. For the Greens to do well, they have to convince solid environmentalists, um, particularly from parties on the left, so the Liberals, but especially the NDP, that they are like sufficiently left on other social issues, right? And this, I think, has been the Green Party's problem, where it like fits with a very like conservative conservation narrative, which is fine, but that also means that you've got like you've got tensions within the party in terms of policy that are always going to be kind of hard to sort out um, because it's also like the, the Parti Québécois or the Bloc, right? So because you've got this like umbrella issue that animates the whole party, underneath that umbrella, you're going to get people who aren't going to agree on a bunch of stuff, right? So amongst the separatists, you've got like the dedicated left and the unionists and things along these lines. And then you also have like this corporate stuff, which kind of doesn't work. And under the Greens, you've got this like, um, there can be this undercurrent of like conservative policies that don't sit well with people who are looking at like their environmentalism through a, like a social justice lens. Right. And I think that tension um, like really, if I'm being kind to the green party, I think that's where they fell on that particular tension. Um, but I think what happened to anime Paul, if you want to use that as an indicator of Canadian politics and Canadians' openness to a black woman as a party leader or a black woman in a position of power, it's pretty damning. Okay. It's really damning. This is one of these instances where, as Canadians, um, we, the Americans, do so much better at this than what we do. To come full circle to my depressing, like, Canadians suck at this and we should get on it. Yeah, okay. sorry. <laughs> We have only about five more minutes left. We have a ton of questions in the queue. I am going to only uh, read the questions from people who haven't already had a question. And that first one is with Bridge City News here in Leftbridge. Uh, there is a petition online calling for a recall of Aaron O'Toole as the leader of the CPC. Do you see him fighting to keep his job as leader of the CPC? Uh, seems like internal strife within the party too. Uh, I can answer this quickly. Yes, Mr. O'Toole's election night speech indicated very forcefully that he wasn't going anywhere if he could help it. So yeah, I expect to see a fight there for sure. Okay. Uh, next question. You mentioned the policy issues tend to have very little effect on election outcomes. Do party leaders campaigning behind a more populist veneer as experienced also experience the same neg negligible one to two percent increase yeah because that populist rhetoric isn't going to resonate with most with all voters it will resonate with, with some voters so like leaders campaigning on issues they do this because they know the issues move individual voters a lot but like individual voters are a diverse bunch right and so like the things that move some voters are going to move others away from you and populist rhetoric works the same way usually especially like the radical right populist rhetoric, absolutely. The counterpoint I would give would be places like the prairies where we have lots of like, it's not like it still has major issues often racialized with it, but it's this kind of like, I'm going to look out for like the little person against this big interest. So this is where you get like social credit being like the big interest or the banks where you can get conservative populist rhetoric against big unions, where you can get lefty rhetoric um, against, like, if you look in Alberta, like, big corporate oil and gas. Like, th that populist narrative in 2015 with Alberta, where, like, Jim Prentice is like, we're going to protect oil and gas from, like, uh, tax increases because it's going to get bad for them, even though they've made bad money. And Rachel Notley being able to come in and being kind of like, that's not protecting regular folks. What are you doing? Like, that's a populist rhetoric, right? But it is... Um, it takes some of the problematic edge off that rhetoric. And that's why we see it a little bit more commonly here. Like I say, it's not without its problems. But if you're looking at like Maxime Bernier's radical right populist rhetoric, yeah, for every voter he turns off, turns on with that, um, he will turn off infinitely more with it Okay. for now. Yeah. Um, our next question comes from Henning Mundell. Can you explain the considerable sport the People's Party received in this election, whereas in Germany, the far right, mm -hmm. the in brackets AFD, dropped greatly in their elections just six days later. 
Yeah, so to this I would say um, we have good public opinion data that show that one in eight Canadians will respond to a survey question about racism saying that they think racism isn't bad. Uh, we have measures of something called social dominance orientation, which asks about various groups, gender, sex, um, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, nationality, religion, all of those being part of it. Um, and so when we code it, we look for people who think that it's good for some groups to dominate others, which is just a like a nice academic way of saying people who like racism and sexism and uh, homophobia, things along those lines. Um, the people who score highest on that are the ones that are most likely to support the People's Party. Um, uh, followed by the Conservative Party of Canada, followed by the Bloc Québécois. Uh, and so in that sense, I would say in Canada, I can, I, I know why People's Party support was what it was, is that these attitudes exist and they have always existed in Canadian politics. And usually the way that we talk about Canadian politics, it doesn't activate them. We activated them this time. Uh, but I would also point out that Maxime Bernier in 2019 had 28% of his district vote in Beauce, and that fell to 19%. Uh, and so I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed that this support is going to be around like this, but like it used to be that we didn't deliberately activate it, and now we have bad political actors who think that it's a good thing to activate this stuff, which is why I go back to anti-racism all the time to do that work. No. Actually, that leads us to our next question by Laurie Schult. Uh, would you comment on potential solutions and then in bracket actions to mm -hmm. anti-democratic anti and then in brackets misogynistic, etc. Yeah. behaviors or strategies? Yeah, so there's a couple of things on this. The first thing I would point out is that um, while there are certainly a lot of individual level actions for people to take, it would be a mistake to think that all of this stuff is individual responsibility. This is collective and we're talking about systems. And so this is why for me as a Canadian political scientist, I have to look at the systems that founded Canadian politics and acknowledge just how racist they were from the outset, right? Like my family are a bunch of Dutch Protestant settlers. And the reason why the Canadian state liked us was because we checked every box but British, right? Like so British Protestants were seen to be the best settlers because they were seen to be racially superior, um, superior with respect to empire. Like, I'm not endorsing this. Like, this is literally what the policy document said. And so when the Dutch came in after that, it's just kind of like, well, we need more bodies if we're going to, like, properly appropriate the land from indigenous peoples. Um, and so let's go with, like, the European Protestants. If we can't get the Brits, we'll get the Dutch and the Germans and all of this stuff. Like, it is, it's gross, right? And so for me as an individual, I have to acknowledge how, like, my ability to, like, occupy the position I do in Canadian society is founded on that white supremacy, right? Like we don't talk about Canada's origins with respect to white supremacy. And when we do, there's going to be lots of people who get like quite anxious and like individually hurt by this. And the point is like, I'm not saying that individuals are the problem, though some of them are, is that like we have to think about this systemically and think about the solutions with respect to systems. Um, and if this means that some like key parts of Canadian politics, we need to fundamentally chuck out and like rebuild again from scratch, then that's what we do. So like all this to say, I would encourage people to like think about them themselves as individuals. Like, what do you know? What do you feel like you don't know? Like do all of that individual work, certainly. Um, there's lots of information about there that individuals can use individually, but like, individuals need to understand that we're also in a system and it's the system that we have to address. Okay, our last question, more of a comment uh, from Shannon Phillips, which um, uh, you know Shannon, I'm sure. Incredible margin of error for writing, writing level polls, probably mm -hmm. eight points minimum yeah. and incredibly expensive. In other words, mm -hmm. unless you have unlimited dollars to bring down the margin of error, the data is meaningless, your common sense. Yeah. So that's that's right. So either what you need is academically, there are two options that we have. One is a phenomenally expensive study where they actually did proper writing level polling. And I, in order for me to get like a sample of about 2,000 in four Canadian provinces, I pay north of $40,000 for that. And it 
like the amount of work I have to do to get research funding to do that is is staggering. Uh, and that's just four provinces. Like if I was actually going to do a proper disaggregated analysis that was like as detailed as what I needed in any individual electoral district, that's what I would need. Like so no one has this kind of money. So that means that when people say strategic voting, like part of me is like, do you understand the math of sampling? Because I don't think many people do. And I, I say that kindly because the math of sampling is a pain in the ass. Uh, and it's, it's quite like it, it's gnarly math. People, people don't like doing that kind of math. And most people don't need to. And that's fine. Um, but that also means that people should be super skeptical of the individual riding level predictions from national polls because they're making an ecological fallacy. They have to. They have to do that ecological inference from the aggregate to the district level, um, often with like assumptions that are too strong to support and with data that like aren't strong enough to go there with them with those assumptions. Um, so what we did as academics um, was used um, publicly available information for free to figure out that estimate of like how much of like a party support is idiosyncratic to the district. And I don't have time to go into the logic about this, but like the nugget of the logic is that no voter usually knows nor cares where the dividing line for their poll division is. So people know where their district boundaries are, but like the line that gets you to go like vote from like in school A versus school B, folk do not know this. This is not politically relevant. And so we use that lack of relevance. We use it as leverage for a bunch more fancy math um, to kind of get an estimate about like how much is like driven by stuff that's happening in the district versus um, other factors, either individual or national. The really uns like so the satisfying part of this is that we can get this estimate um, and it's free except for our time. Um, the dissatisfying part of it is that when people say, well, what's driving it? We're like, I don't know. <laughs> it's in the district. Like it's so yeah. All this to say, um, I think it's really too easy for people to be, but vote strategically because like the information that's readily available for people to be able to do that is often just junk. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, great. Thank you so much, Melanie. Lots of thank yous in the queue. Many thanks, Melanie. Really nice to have you back at SACPA from Knut Peterson. Mark Goodall, thanks. Love your passion. Bath Mandel, thank you for your incent incisive analysis, Melanie. And Laura Schultz, thank you. Um, and on behalf of SACPA, really thank you for uh, being here. We've gone quite a bit over time today. Sorry. I'm yeah. ho hoping you're okay with that and you don't have any urgent uh, next meeting. It's um, not urgent. Okay. So okay. It's all good. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so it is. It's wonderful to be back in at SACPA again. I'm a. I'm a big fan, and so it's always. It's always nice to be seen to be a friend of the organization as well. For sure. Well, we love having you. Absolutely love it. Um, for the folks at home, please join us next week uh, for government's plan for rural medicine. Do not resuscitate, with Sam Murr, rural medicine president for the Alberta Medical Association. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you.